Welcome, my fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, former member of the State Board of Education and co-creator of Patriot Week. This special standalone episode interrupts our detailed review of the Declaration of Independence. In our last episode, which was also a special episode, we explored the constitutional and statutory basis for the federal and state governments to implement the responses to the COVID-19 crisis. As I explained at the beginning of that episode, the situation was fluidly changing. Since then, the actions of the state government in Michigan, the home state of Patriot Week, and myself have become the focus of intense attention nationally. This, in part, is because the national media is painting Democratic Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer as the potential running mate with former Vice President and Senator Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the governor and President Trump have garnered attention by challenging each other, with Trump expressing disdain by referring to her in some less than polite ways. The president recently tweeted, quote, liberate Michigan, unquote. Further, the state capitol was literally put in deadlock just a few days ago when thousands of cars descended on Lansing to protest against the reach of some of the governor's executive orders. Plus, in the last few days, at least three federal lawsuits have been filed, challenging portions of Governor Whitmer's orders. The national controversy swirling around Michigan, as is way too typical in this day and age, is being done in a sometimes toxic swirl of partisan politics along with misleading headlines. I want to try to cut through that cacophony, not taking sides. Instead, we will be reviewing the Michigan Constitution, legislation, executive orders, and lawsuits that are at the center of this controversy. In essence, this episode is a case study, addendum to the last episode. Although it only addresses Michigan, what we review here will likely cross-apply, at least in great measure, across the nation. Last episode, we reviewed the constitutional and statutory authority for the reaction of the federal and state governments. As a case study of the last episode, if you haven't listened to it yet, you might want to go back and check it out. But if you don't mind, feel free to jump on board and join us right here and right now. I'll be back in a quick minute. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. By the time you listen to this podcast, any statistics about the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic will be obsolete. The point of this episode is not to try to keep up with that very fluid situation, but to give you a case study as of April 18th, 2020, of how the state of Michigan is proceeding and the constitutional and legal theories on which the state is grounding its actions. One more caveat up front. If you are looking for me to pontificate from on high and come out with specific predictions or legal rulings, I'm not going to do that. What I will do is give you the laydown of what has been happening, a background of the federal and Michigan Constitution, as well as other Michigan-specific legal authority. And a word of warning. When I thought of doing this episode, based on receiving a bunch of questions about how Michigan was doing, I thought it would be perhaps the shortest episode I'd ever done. No such luck. Okay. Buckle up your seatbelts or grab a nice cup of coffee or a glass of wine or maybe a few shots of bourbon. Here we go. To begin with, we will do a quick review of some of the basics from the last episode. We need to remember that American government is a federal system. 
the United States Constitution established the federal government based in Washington, D.C. That government only has the authority expressly given to it by the Constitution. That is what we call the doctrine of enumerated powers. In almost all other countries, there is a national government. It has unlimited legislative and executive authority. Local governments only have authority delegated to them by the national one. The United States is the opposite. The federal government here only has the authority expressly given to it by the United States Constitution. In a parallel fashion, the state governments have all the authority of government not given to the federal government. This is established by how the Constitution is written and organized and is explicitly stated in the Tenth Amendment. At the heart of the authority of states is what we call the police power. The police power is a broad authority of the states to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the people. As we learned last episode, there is no question that acting to protect the public from disease and epidemics is a power vested in state governments. Now that we have done our quick review, how do states exercise their governmental authority? Each state has a constitution that outlines how its government works. Article 1, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution provides, quote, All political power is inherent in the people. Government is instituted for their equal benefit, security, and protection, unquote. In other words, the entire structure of Michigan government rests on the power of the people. Sentiments like this are common in state governments. The people of the state of Michigan ratified the Constitution via a statewide election. Notice that the purpose of the government is for the benefit, security, and protection of the people. Like all constitutions, the Michigan Constitution establishes three branches of government. First, the legislative branch is vested in the legislature of the state. That is the ability to pass laws. In Michigan, Article 4 of the Michigan Constitution of 1963 establishes the legislative branch. There are two chambers of the legislative branch, a state senate and a state house. Senators serve for four years, house members for two. They are elected by the people in respective legislative districts. And there are term limits. Second, the executive power is vested in the governor of each state. In Michigan, Article 5 of the Constitution establishes a governor who holds office for a term of four years. She is elected by the people at large and is limited to two full terms. Third, the judicial power is vested in one court of justice. Article 6 creates the state judiciary, with the Supreme Court elected to eight-year terms statewide, a court of appeals elected to six-year terms via one of four geographic districts, and trial courts elected in the respective districts also to six-year terms. Justices and judges have no term limits. I am a circuit court judge, which means my court is a court of general jurisdiction. Circuit courts cover at least one county. My county, Oakland County, has close to 1.3 million people. The Constitution of Michigan also establishes local governments, a state board of education, which I used to serve on, free public schools, and other governmental boards and institutions. Michigan has a Declaration of Rights, which is the first article of the Constitution. The Declaration of Rights lists a slew of protections afforded to individuals. The specific rights protected by the Declaration of Rights include the equal protection of the law, the right to peacefully assemble, to consult for the common good, to instruct their representatives and petition the government for redress of grievances, the right to worship God according to the dictates of your own conscience, the freedoms of speech and press, the right to bear arms, due process, jury trials, and similar guarantees of our unalienable rights. What I mean by unalienable rights, by the way, is our next regularly scheduled episode. 
My review of the constitutions of the states, and yes, I have reviewed them all, reveals that each is different, but they all have this basic outline. Michigan has exercised its police power in connection with dealing with emergencies and disasters by passing two major laws. The first is the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act of 1945, Public Act 302 of 1945, and codified in Michigan Compiled Law 10.31333. This act is very short, with only three sections. The first section provides the governor can proclaim a state of emergency and designate the area involved, quote, during times of great public crisis, disaster, rioting, catastrophe, or similar public emergency within the state, or reasonable apprehension of immediate danger of a public emergency of that kind, when public safety is imperiled, either upon application of the mayor of a city, sheriff of a county, or the commissioner of the Michigan State Police, or upon his or her own volition, unquote. Let's break that down. First, the governor has the ability to proclaim a state of emergency. Second, she has the ability to designate where that emergency is. Third, to declare the emergency, there needs to be, or a reasonable apprehension of, immediate danger of a great public crisis, disaster, catastrophe, or similar public emergency. That is quite broad. There is no definition of the act of what any of that means. Fourth, the governor can declare the emergency on her own, or a mayor, sheriff, or state police commissioner can apply to the governor to so proclaim an emergency. The first section of the Emergency Powers Act of the Governor of 1945 continues, quote, After making the proclamation or declaration, the governor may promulgate reasonable orders, rules, and regulations as he or she considers necessary to protect life and property or to bring the emergency situation within the affected area under control, unquote. In other words, once the governor declares an emergency, she can issue reasonable orders, rules, and regulations she considers necessary to protect life, property, and to resolve the emergency. Again, this is quite broad. The key phrases are that the orders need to be reasonable and she must consider them to be necessary to protect life, property, and to resolve the emergency. The first section of the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act of 1945 lists some of the areas that she can issue orders and regulations. Quote, providing for the control of traffic, including public and private transportation, within the area or any section of the area, designation of specific zones within the area in which the occupancy and use of buildings and ingress and egress of persons and vehicles may be prohibited or regulated, control of places of amusement and assembly and of persons on public streets and thoroughfares, establishment of a curfew, control of sale, transportation of use of alcoholic beverages and liquors, and control of the storage, use, and transportation of explosives or inflammable materials or liquids deemed to be dangerous to public safety, unquote. In short, the authority given to the governor under the act is very broad. Under the act, the rules stay in effect for as long as the governor wants, and they terminate when the governor declares the emergency over. One interesting exception laid out in the act is that a declaration of emergency, quote, does not authorize the seizure, taking, or confiscation of lawfully possessed firearms, ammunition, or other weapons, unquote. The Declaration of Rights in Article I of the Constitution has 27 different sections, and several sections include more than one unalienable right, but the only one specifically protected in the Emergency Powers of Governor Act is the right to bear arms. 
that doesn't mean that the other rights are not constitutionally protected because any act of the legislature and any orders of the governor must respect the rights set forth in the Declaration of Rights and the Federal Constitution. But here there is a special statutory protection as well for the right to bear arms. Section 2 of the Act provides guidance to the courts about how they should interpret the Act. Specifically, the law provides, quote, It is hereby declared to be the legislative intent to invest the governor with sufficiently broad power of action and the exercise of the police power of the state to provide adequate control over persons and conditions during such periods of impending or actual public crisis or disaster. The provisions of this act shall be broadly construed to effectuate this purpose, unquote. Well, what does that mean? Well, basically, it is directing the courts to read the statutory authority given to the governor broadly to address declared emergencies. This is a rule of statutory construction put into the act that courts should, in less than precise legal language, give the governor the benefit of the doubt. Section 3 of the act provides that it is a misdemeanor if one violates an order, rule, or regulation promulgated by the governor under the act. That means someone could be fined up to $500 and serve up to 90 days in jail. Unlike everything else that we are going to be reviewing, this act is forthright, simple, concise, and to the point. The legislature has passed another act, the Emergency Management Act, Public Act 390 of 1976, codified at Michigan Compiled Laws 30.401 in subsequent provisions, which is a bit more complicated. Section 3, subsection 1 of that act provides, quote, the governor is responsible for coping with dangers to this state or the people of this state presented by a disaster or emergency, unquote. In other words, the governor has the duty to act in face of an emergency or disaster. The act distinguishes between emergency and disaster. Section 2E of the Act specifically lists an epidemic as a disaster. Section 2H defines an emergency as, quote, any occasion or instance in which the governor determines state assistance is needed to supplement local efforts and capabilities to save lives, protect property and the public health and safety, or to lessen or avert the threat of a catastrophe in any part of the state, unquote. This definition is less about the what and more about the how. In other words, if a local community doesn't have the resources to deal with an issue that threatens lives, property, public health, or safety, or to avert a catastrophe, an emergency exists. Under Section 3 of the Act, the governor can declare an emergency or disaster if she determines that one has occurred or the threat of an emergency or disaster exists. The proclamation of a disaster or emergency continues until the governor declares that it no longer exists. However, the emergency proclamation cannot continue past 28 days without obtaining approval of both houses of the state legislature. The resolutions extending the emergency or disaster must include a specific number of days. Section 3 also requires that the proclamation explain the nature of the disaster or emergency, the areas threatened, the conditions causing the disaster, and conditions permitting its termination. Once a proclamation is issued, the governor has authority to deploy and, quote, use of any forces to which the plan or plans apply, and the use or distribution of supplies, equipment, materials, or facilities assembled or stockpiled pursuant to this act, unquote. Section 5 of the act lists a set of additional powers the governor may use during an emergency or a disaster, including, one, suspending a state law or regulation for conducting state business when strict compliance would prevent, 
hinder or delay taking necessary action. However, she cannot suspend criminal process or procedures. Two, using available state and local resources as reasonably necessary to cope with the disaster or emergency. Three, reorganizing state government to perform or facilitate emergency management. Four, with appropriate compensation, commandeer or utilize private property necessary to cope with the disaster or emergency. Five, order evacuations. Six, direct transportation routes in connection with an evacuation. Seven, control who comes in and out of and occupation of buildings within the affected area. Eight, stopping or limiting sales and transportation of alcoholic beverages and explosives. Nine, provide temporary emergency housing. And just in case they missed anything, and as we are about to see, they missed a lot, it has a catch-all provision, which is reminiscent of the 1945 Act. 10. Direct all other actions which are necessary and appropriate under the circumstances. Again, the only right specifically carved out for protection is the right to bear arms. Violations of any orders is a misdemeanor, subjecting an offender to up to 90 days in jail and or a $500 fine. In addition, Section 6 of the Act imposes certain duties on Michigan citizens. In particular, quote, all persons within the state shall conduct themselves and manage their affairs and property in ways that will reasonably assist and will not unreasonably detract from the ability of the state and the public to cope with the effects of a disaster or an emergency. This obligation includes appropriate personal service and the use or restriction of the use of property in time of a disaster or an emergency, unquote. Remember, the Act first imposes a duty on the governor to act in the face of an emergency or a disaster. Here, it imposes a duty on everyone in the state to act reasonably to address the emergency or disaster. But there are limits. The Act continues, quote, This Act neither increases nor decreases these obligations, but recognizes their existence under the state constitution of 1963, the statutes, and the common law, unquote. The Act also has a great deal of verbiage about when persons can be compensated for fulfilling their duties. Basically, you have to do something special, other than what the general public is doing, to be paid for whatever you might do during a disaster or emergency. The Director of State Police is authorized to coordinate the activities of the state to address an emergency or disaster. In addition, all state departments and agencies are to cooperate to address the emergency or disaster. In a very interesting provision, the Act provides for purposes of the requirement that all departments cooperate, that, quote, the judicial branch of this state is considered a department of state government, and the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court is considered the director of that department, unquote. As noted earlier, the Constitution specifically provides that the judiciary is a separate branch of government, and that the judicial power is vested in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is an elected body, not run by the governor. But this act treats it like any other department that the governor manages, such as the Department of Transportation or Agriculture. The act does not attempt to reconcile the Constitution with this provision of the act. The law also provides that each county, municipalities of 25,000 people or more, and colleges and universities with over 25,000 students and staff must have an emergency manager coordinator who is to work to address any emergencies or disasters. Section 17 of the Act provides that authority granted by the Act should not be construed to interfere with a labor dispute, 
interfere with the freedom of press to disseminate news or comment on public affairs, or affect the jurisdiction of law enforcement, fire departments, or the military. It also states that the act should not be read to scale back the governor's authority under the 1945 Act or the Constitution or any other act. The act establishes a disaster and emergency contingency fund of at least $2.5 million and not to exceed $10 million and lays out how the funds may be spent. As I mentioned, the 1976 Act is much more complex than the 1945 Act. In summary, Michigan has a 1945 Act and a 1976 Act with similar provisions and overlapping authority granted to the governor, but also with some very different provisions. The next question might be, how has the governor actually used these acts in the past? For a point of comparison, in 2019, current Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer declared five separate states of emergency. They involved extreme cold weather for the entire state, extreme winter weather for the city of Grand Rapids, flooding and power outages in Wayne County, flooding in Tuscola County, and flooding in Lake County. Earlier this year, an executive order 2020-4 in response to the federal government's declaration of a national emergency and the appearance of two COVID-19 positive tests in the state, Governor Whitmer declared a state of emergency. She relied on her constitutional authority as governor, plus both of the 1945 and 1976 Emergency Power Acts. There is now in effect a slew of executive orders addressing COVID-19. I'm going to run through them, and for the most part, just by title. Otherwise, this podcast will drone on for hours. But when we hit a particularly interesting one that requires more explanation, I will flush it out. Each order is given a number, beginning with the year 2020, and then the number in which the order was issued. For example, 2020-1 is the first executive order issued in 2020. Several COVID-19 related orders were issued and then rescinded and replaced. Orders unrelated to COVID-19 have also been issued. My list will follow the number of the orders that are currently in effect. Since we already covered number four, and everything between number four and number 13 has either been rescinded or is immaterial to COVID-19, the list begins with number 14. And we will skip numbers if the order is no longer in effect or unrelated to COVID-19. Here we go. Number 14, temporary extension of deadline to redeem property for non-payment of delinquent property taxes. Number 15, temporary authorization of remote participation in public meetings and hearings and temporary relief from monthly meeting requirements for school boards. Number 16, expanding of child care access. Number 17, temporary restrictions on non-essential medical and dental procedures. Number 18, enhanced restrictions on price gouging. Number 19, suspension of evictions. Number 22, extension of county canvas deadlines for the March 10, 2020 presidential primary election. Number 24, temporary expansions in unemployment eligibility and cost sharing. Number 25, temporary enhancements to operational capacity, flexibility, and efficiency of pharmacies. Number 26, extension of April 2020 Michigan income tax filing deadline. Number 27, conducting elections at May 5, 2020 using absentee voter ballots. Number 28, restoring water service to occupied residences during the COVID-19 pandemic. Number 29, temporary COVID-19 protocols for entry into 
Michigan Department of Corrections facilities and transfers to and from department custody. Temporary recommended COVID-19 protocols and enhanced early release authorization for county jails, local lockups, and juvenile detention centers. Number 30, temporary relief from certain restrictions and requirements governing the provision of medical services. Number 31, temporary relief from standard vapor pressing restrictions on gasoline sales. Number 33, expanded emergency and disaster declaration. This will require some explanation. The original executive order declaring a COVID-19 emergency was rescinded and replaced with number 33. Although there was some different verbiage in number 33, it is very similar in scope and purpose as the original declaration. Republican lawmakers argued that this new executive order was entered to try to restart and thereby circumvent the 20-day clock under the 1976 Act. And there'll be more about that later. Number 34, temporary restrictions on veterinary services. Number 35, provision of K-12 education during the remainder of the 2019-2020 school year. This 7,500-word executive order closed all public, private, and boarding school buildings and canceled extracurricular activities for the remainder of the school year. The order waived the minimum number of hours and days required to receive public school funding if the district has a Department of Education approved alternative education program or another innovative program approved by the department. The order specifically provided that by April 3, 2020, the Department of Education, in collaboration with the Michigan Association of Intermediate School Administrators and the Michigan Council of Charter School Authorizers, shall develop and distribute a model template for a plan that would be approved. Each plan must address at least 14 separate requirements, including a description of the methods of alternative instruction, plans to deliver content, plans to manage and monitor pupils, provide or arrange food distribution, evaluation of participation, and mental health support. The plans require approval of an immediate school district or, if a charter school, the authorizing agency. It also waives a host of testing and other assessments, as well as professional development requirements. It has special provisions for 12th graders and special education. Number 36, protecting workers who stay home, stay safe when they are or their close contacts are sick. It orders employees who test positive or display one or more of the principal symptoms of COVID-19 to stay home until three days have passed since their symptoms are resolved and seven days have passed since their symptoms first appeared or they were swabbed for a positive test. But an employee who later tests negative, he or she can go back to work. The order also declares the public policy of the state that anyone who has had close contact with someone who has tested positive or displays symptoms should stay home until 14 days have passed or he or she receives a negative test. Exemptions include healthcare professionals and workers, first responders, child protective service employees, workers at child caring institutions, and workers at correctional facilities if the employers are complying with COVID-19 health regulations. Anyone ordered to stay home can leave only to, quote, the extent absolutely necessary to obtain food, medicine, medical care, or supplies that are needed to sustain or protect life, where such food, medicine, medical care, or supplies cannot be obtained via delivery, unquote. The order also provides that such supplies should be picked up at curbside, quote, to the fullest extent possible, unquote. Another exemption is, quote, to engage in outdoor activity, 
including walking, hiking, running, cycling, or any other recreational activity consistent with remaining at least six feet from people outside of their household, unquote. It also declares as the public policy of the state that if those people leave their home, quote, he or she should wear some form of covering over the nose and mouth, such as a homemade mask, scarf, bandana, or handkerchief, unquote, and that the supplies of N95 and surgical masks should generally be reserved for healthcare professionals, first responders, and other critical workers. The order prohibits employers from discharging or disciplining any employee for staying home. Employees must be treated as if they were taking medical leave for an unlimited amount of time. Employees need not be paid if they have used all their paid leave time. Employees can only be discharged or disciplined for failing to come back to work when they can do so under the order, but still refuse. Number 37, temporary restrictions on entry into health care facilities, residential care facilities, congregate care facilities, and juvenile justice facilities. Number 38, temporary extensions of certain FOIA deadlines to facilitate COVID-19 emergency response efforts. Number 39, temporary relief from certain restrictions and requirements governing the provision of emergency medical services. Number 40, temporary relief from certain credentialing requirements for motor carriers transporting essential supplies, equipment, and persons. Number 41, encouraging the use of electronic signatures and remote notarization, witnessing, and visitation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Number 42, temporary requirement to suspend activities that are not necessary to sustain or protect life. This is the big one that has received the most attention and criticism. Extending the measures originally set forth in Executive Order 2020-21 and to clarify them effective on April 9, 2020 and ending on April 30, 2020, the nearly 3,400-word Order 42 provides that, quote, all individuals currently living within the state of Michigan are ordered to stay at home or at their place of residence. Subject to the same exceptions, all public and private gatherings of any number of people occurring among persons not part of a single household are prohibited, unquote. Anyone who leaves home must, quote, adhere to social distancing measures recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, including remaining at least six feet from people from outside the individual's household to the extent feasible under the circumstances, unquote. In addition, quote, no person or entity shall operate a business or conduct operations that require workers to leave their homes or places of residence, except to the extent that those workers are necessary to sustain or protect life or to conduct minimum basic operations, unquote. Those who are necessary to conduct minimum basic operations are those whose in-person presence is, quote, strictly necessary to allow the business or operation to maintain the value of inventory and equipment, care for animals, ensure security, process transactions including payroll and employee benefits, or facilitate the ability of other workers to work remotely, unquote. And when they work, employees must conform with the social distancing requirements. Some businesses, however, have employees who are considered, quote, critical infrastructure workers, unquote. Those people may continue in-person operations. Critical infrastructure workers include those in healthcare and public health, necessary government activities, and workers and volunteers providing food, shelter, and other necessities of life for the poor or the disabled. 
Again, social distancing measures must be applied in all workplaces. All in-person government activities unnecessary to sustain or protecting life are suspended. Government operations involving law enforcement, public safety, first responders, public transit, trash and recycling, and maintenance of safe and sanitary parks are exempt. People may leave home to, quote, engage in outdoor physical activity, consistent with remaining at least six feet from people from outside the individual's household. Outdoor physical activity includes walking, hiking, running, cycling, kayaking, canoeing, or other similar physical activity, as well as any comparable activity for those with limited mobility, unquote. People may also leave to obtain necessary services or supplies and to protect their health and safety of those in their household, including pets. The number of people who leave should be limited to, quote, the extent that it is safe and feasible, unquote. People can also leave to care for a family member or a family member's pet in another household, to care for minors, dependents, elderly, people with disabilities, or other vulnerable persons, to visit someone in a healthcare facility if the visit is otherwise permitted, to attend legal proceedings for, quote, essential or emergency purposes as ordered by the court, unquote. No more than 10 people can attend a funeral. You can also leave the state to go to a home outside of the state or return to Michigan to come to your own home. Travel between two residences within the state is prohibited. You can also comply with a court order in connection with parenting time. All other travel, including travel to vacation rentals, is banned. Critical infrastructure sectors include healthcare and public health, law enforcement, public safety and first responders, food and agriculture, water and wastewater, energy, transportation and logistics, public works, communications and information technology, including news media, community-based government operations and essential functions, critical manufacturing, hazardous materials, financial services, chemical supply chains and safety, and defense industrial base. Critical infrastructure workers also include suppliers, distribution centers, and service providers for other critical infrastructure sectors, insurance, but only to the extent work is done remotely, workers who perform critical labor union functions, workers at retail stores who sell groceries and other supplies to maintain safety, sanitation, and basic operation of residences, including convenience stores, pet supply stores, auto supplies and repair stores, hardware and home maintenance stores, and home appliance retailers, laundromats and dry cleaners, hotels and motels, but not their gyms, pools, spas, dining, entertainment, etc., and dealership workers for online sales and delivery of cars, showrooms are closed. Everyone must adhere to social distancing and cleaning. Stores must have markings to enable patrons to stand at least six feet apart. Stores with less than 50,000 square feet of customer service space must limit the number present in the store to 25% of occupancy limits. Stores with more than 50,000 square feet can only have four people per 1,000 square feet of customer floor space. Areas of stores to be closed off include sales of carpet and flooring, furniture, garden centers and plant nurseries, and paint. Stores cannot advertise for anything other than groceries, medical supplies, and items that are necessary for safety, sanitation, and basic operations of homes. Each store must create at least two hours of dedicated shopping time for vulnerable populations, including people over 60, pregnant women, and those with chronic conditions like heart disease, diabetes, and lung disease. 
no one can advertise or rent a short-term property to anyone other than healthcare professionals or volunteers aiding in the COVID-19 response. A violation of the order is a misdemeanor. That is, violators could face up to 90 days in jail and or a $500 fine. Although there is no general religious worship exemption, criminal penalties do not apply to any place of religious worship, quote, when used for religious worship, unquote. The order also states that, quote, nothing in this order should be taken to interfere with or infringe on the powers of the legislative and judicial branches to perform their constitutional duties or exercise their authority, unquote. If you have some questions about that order, you are not alone. The 3,400-word order has a nearly 4,700-word frequently asked questions that accompany it. The FAQ explains that the order does not apply to Native Americans living on their own territory. It also states that it does not prohibit anyone from buying anything, including American flags, only the way items are purchased. It specifically states that car seats are available for purchase. It makes clear that attending church services while staying in your car counts for the religious worship exemption. It states that, quote, persons may engage in expressive activities protected by the First Amendment within the state of Michigan, but must adhere to social distancing measures recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, including remaining at least six feet from people from outside the person's household, unquote. Security workers can go to work in person if necessary to the job. Lawyers, attorney offices, and legal clinics cannot operate in person unless it is related to providing food, shelter, or other necessities of life. Generally, campgrounds are closed. Bottle returns are prohibited. Child care workers are permitted, but only if they are serving children of workers who are exempt from the order. Bicycle shops are basically closed. Home repairs can only be performed if they deal with the sanitation, safety, and essential operations of residences. That would be something to, quote, restore the habitability of a residence, and any non-emergency maintenance or improvements to residences are not permitted, unquote. Basically, real estate agents, brokers, and services are closed. Some construction activities are permitted, including maintenance to maintain or improve roads, bridges, telecommunications equipment, and public health infrastructure. However, Landscaping, lawn care, tree service, and related outdoor maintenance companies are closed unless it involves the habitability of a home in an emergency. Lawn grass does not count, but you can tend to your own yard. Golf courses are closed. Tobacco shops, cigar bars, vape shops, and hookah lounges closed. Pest control companies can operate if necessary to maintain the safety, sanitation, and essential operations of a residence. Car washes? closed. Pools and spas, closed. Massage spas, closed. Furniture delivery, no. Craft and hobby stores, no. Boating. Now, this is a big deal. Michigan is a peninsula, and boating is tremendously important pastime for many. The order provides, quote, physical outdoor activity like kayaking, canoeing, and sailing is permitted under the order, but using a motorboat, a jet ski, or similar watercraft is not. Any outdoor activity permitted under the order, including boating, must be done in a manner consistent with social distancing, and individuals should use only their own equipment to prevent the transmission of the virus through the touching of shared surfaces. Additionally, in accordance with Section 2 of the order, persons not part of a single household 
may not boat together. While some boating is permitted under the order, the provision of boating services or supplies does not itself constitute critical infrastructure work, and businesses and operations may not designate workers to come to work for that purpose, unquote. Number 42, now that was a doozy. Onward. Number 43, temporary restrictions on the use of places of public accommodation. This order is another big one. It specifically closed the following places of public accommodation to the general public. Quote, restaurants, food courts, cafes, coffee houses, and other places of public accommodation offering food or beverage for on-premises consumption. Bars, taverns, brew pubs, breweries, microbreweries, distilleries, wineries, tasting rooms, special licensees, clubs, and other places of public accommodation offering alcoholic beverages for on-premises consumption. Hookah bars, cigar bars, and vaping lounges offering their products for on-premises consumption. Theaters, cinemas, and indoor and outdoor performance venues, libraries and museums, gymnasiums, fitness centers, recreation centers, indoor sports facilities, indoor exercise facilities, exercise studios, and facilities offering non-essential personal care services. Casinos licensed by the Michigan Gaming Control Board, racetracks licensed by the Michigan Gaming Control Board, and millionaire parties licensed by the Michigan Gaming Control Board, and places of public amusement not otherwise listed above, unquote. Such places are encouraged to provide food and beverage delivery service and to take out service if they comply with social distancing. Number 44, enhanced support for deliveries. That is weight, noise, and timing restrictions for trucks and connection with deliveries of essential items are suspended and permits that allow exceeding such restrictions are expedited. Number 45, enhanced authorization of remote means for carrying out state administrative proceedings. That is remote hearings for the Michigan Employment Relations Commission, the Unemployment Insurance Agency, and administrative proceedings are approved. Number 46, mitigating the economic harms of the COVID-19 pandemic through the creation of a spirits buyback program for restaurants and bars throughout the state. In Michigan, the purchase and distribution of alcohol is strictly controlled and is purchased through the Michigan Liquor Control Commission. Recognizing, quote, the limitations required by this pandemic and the economic harms caused by it have hit restaurants and bars particularly hard, unquote, the Michigan Liquor Control Commission is authorized to buy back liquor from bars and restaurants. Number 47, temporary extension of the validity of certain driver's licenses, state identification cards, and vehicle registrations. Number 48, temporary authorization of remote participation in public meetings and hearings and temporary relief from monthly meeting requirements for school boards. Number 49, temporary enhancements to operational capacity and efficiency of healthcare facilities. Number 50, enhanced protections for residents and staff of long-term care facilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Number 51, expanding childcare access. Number 52, temporary extension of certain pesticide applicator certificates. Between my first draft of this episode being finalized on Saturday afternoon and my second draft one Saturday evening, two more orders popped up. Number 53, enhanced restrictions on price gouging. And number 54, temporary prohibition against entry to premises for the purpose of removing or excluding a tenant or mobile home owner from their home. Wow, that is a slew of new executive orders coming out of the governor's office. Her legal counsel is very, very busy. It is enough to make your head spin. 
In addition to the criminal penalty of up to 90 days in jail and a $500 fine for violating these orders, an emergency order issued by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Director Robert Gordon establishes a $1,000 civil penalty plus referral to applicable licensing agencies for violations of Michigan's shelter-at-home order. This civil penalty is the only statewide order that I'm aware of, which was issued by an administrative agency that is not by a governor or a legislature. There may be other ones, uh, but it does appear to be uncommon. Don't get me wrong. Administrative agencies do this kind of thing all the time, but usually they do it through a rulemaking process, which includes notice of the proposed order, a public hearing, and other procedural safeguards before the rule comes into place. Now, if you know Michiganders, we can get pretty feisty pretty quickly if we feel that our rights are being infringed. On April 15th, usually known as tax day because that is when income taxes are usually due, but not this year, thousands of Michiganders were in Lansing to protest the shelter at home orders. The protest was organized by the Michigan Conservative Coalition, which urged supporters to participate in what they dubbed Operation Gridlock. They urged protesters to drive to Lansing and stay in their car while doing so. They wanted downtown Lansing and the larger city and the expressways to be jammed full of cars. They specifically asked people to be respectful and not be disparaging. Their communications repeatedly emphasized that the protesters should stay in their cars. Apparently not everyone paid attention and some left their cars with uh, less than polite signs and it appeared that many were violating the social distancing requirements. According to the Detroit News, quote, the massive demonstration highlighted the tension between Whitmer's goal of saving lives and limiting the spread of COVID-19, as well as protesters' worry about avoiding prolonged economic damage and what they argue are inconsistent rules. The noise, buzz of songs, and chants continued even as the Democratic governor criticized those nearby who gridlocked the Capitol complex, accusing them of endangering lives, unquote. The Detroit News also reported that Governor Whitmer said she respected the participants' right to protest, but was very concerned about the protesters who got out of their cars. Governor Whitmer stated, quote, We know that this demonstration is going to come at a cost to people's health. The sad irony here is that the protest was about that they didn't like the stay-home order, and they may have just created a need to lengthen it. Just by congregating, they've made that a real possibility, unquote. The state police reported that for the most part, the protesters were polite and respectful. Republican House Speaker Lee Chatfield waved American flags from his office in the Capitol. He reportedly stated that his goal was to ensure that the government heard the protesters and, quote, I know I've heard them. I have their back. And I want to do all I can to ensure their constitutional rights are protected and that they can get their livelihoods back and take care of their families. Unquote. They weren't the only protesters on April 15th. That same day, as again reported by the Detroit News, protesters were in Ann Arbor, outside the Rogel Cancer Center, which is affiliated with the University of Michigan Medicine System, Go Blue. The protesters in Ann Arbor were healthcare workers and supporters demanding better and faster distribution and manufacture of medical supplies for healthcare workers and first responders. This is part of a national string of protests organized as a National Day of Action. Meanwhile, some city officials have been openly flaunting the executive orders involving commercial lawn service. City of Warren Mayor Jim Fouts, along with the mayor of St. Clair Shores, both of suburban Detroit, and hey, I used to live in St. Clair Shores and Warren, isn't that named after me? And the township supervisor of Clinton Township, 
said they would not enforce the order because of concerns of gubernatorial overreach and health concerns. They argued that long grass draws in mice, rats, and other rodents. Be that as it may, the Clinton Township Board actually reversed the township supervisor. In addition, the governor has received resistance on the executive order relaxing the time guidelines for local governments to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests. The press and think tanks have complained that the public needs access to information quickly and actually in greater depth in a crisis. Despite these concerns, on April 7th, both houses of the legislature voted to extend Governor Whitmer's declaration of a state of emergency. As noted earlier, the 1976 Emergency Act only allows the governor to act unilaterally and without the permission of the state legislature for 28 days. Originally, the governor wanted a 70-day extension. However, the Republican Party holds control of both the Michigan Senate and the House, and they refused to go along with a 70-day extension. Instead, they approved a 23-day extension through April 30th. There was actually quite a bit of drama surrounding the convening of the legislature for the vote. Despite requiring members to wear a mask, be screened, and have their temperature taken, and that lawmakers were to adhere to social distancing and sanitation precautions, dozens of lawmakers boycotted or otherwise failed to appear for the session. Of the 110 members of the House, only 78 appeared. Of the 38 members of the Senate, only 20. Most members wore masks on the floor, although the presiding officers went without, but they were well beyond six feet from other members. Unfortunately, one Detroit legislator, Representative Isaac Robinson, had passed away about a week before. His family surmises the cause of death was COVID-19, and his desk was draped in black, adorned with white flowers. So very sad. Two other Detroit representatives were also absent because they had tested positive for the virus. When they met, the legislature used some sleight of hand. They had members come onto the floor in small groups, be counted for purposes of a quorum, and then left. When the vote was taken, it was by voice vote, which means there was no roll call and only a few members were actually present on the floor in each chamber. In addition, the governor at one point argued that the legislature did not need to act because she rescinded the original declaration of emergency and issued a new one, claiming that reset the clock. The legislature would have none of that, claiming it would violate the law and voted to extend the state of emergency to April 30th. At this point, Governor Whitmer seems content to live with the April 30th extension, although she could try in the future to rely on the 1945 Act that has no such time limit, as well as her own inherent constitutional authority. In addition to the governor, the Michigan Supreme Court has been extraordinarily proactive in connection with COVID-19. Begun by Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormick with a set of recommendations to trial courts, the Supreme Court quickly adopted an emergency order postponing jury trials and non-emergency hearings. Subsequent orders have permitted non-emergency hearings via telephonic or video conferencing, subject to a number of conditions to ensure the integrity of the record and access to proceedings for the public and media. I often dispense with oral argument emotions, and this practice has become particularly handy in this crisis. I was also the state's first e-filing judge, and have been accepting, reviewing, and issuing orders via e-filing for over a decade. The whole state is now moving to e-filing, but uh, some are more advanced than others. I've been wrapping up proceedings via the video conference application Zoom, and have arraigned defendants, taken pleas, and conducted sentencing 
remotely. Defendants still have a right to appear physically in the courtroom, that is criminal defendants, but to do that, their cases would have to be adjourned. I also have conducted civil pretrials via Zoom and have issued a slew of scheduling orders adjourning civil cases. When Chief Justice McCormick's recommendations came out on March 11th, that's if my memory serves, I immediately canceled two jury trials, one set for the next morning and the other March 16th. Although not at a standstill, justice is moving very slowly. On the jail side, there has been a strong effort to release defendants as quickly as possible, either by shortening sentences, implementing diversionary programs in lieu of jail, or reducing bond conditions. The population of the Oakland County Jail, remember that's my court, has dropped by hundreds. However, public safety is the number one priority, so many people will stay put. The prisons, that is where people go if they are sentenced beyond a year, otherwise they stay in jail, is not accepting new prisoners. Both jails and prisons, pursuant to the governor's executive orders, are letting in few visitors and have undertaken safety precautions. But it is impossible to comply with social distancing for everyone in custody. In addition, many law enforcement agencies have announced that they are simply not enforcing nonviolent or misdemeanor crimes because they are concerned about officers being infected or bringing infected people into the jail. In fact, the chief of police in Detroit was infected, and several key leaders of his force have been ill or even died. So very tragic. So, we have now a good handle on life has been changed inside and out by the state's reaction to COVID-19. Now the question becomes, is this all legal? Going back to last episode and beginning of this one, remember the states have police power to protect health and safety, and addressing an epidemic is at the heart of this power. The legislature has enacted the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act of 1945, which allows the governor to, on her own, declare a public emergency when there is, or reasonable apprehension of immediate danger from, a great public crisis or similar public emergency within the state. Once she does that, she may promulgate reasonable orders she considers necessary to protect life and property and resolve the emergency. However, the governor has come under severe criticism, for example, closing down sections of an otherwise open store, for banning motorized boating, closing down gun stores, and prohibiting people from going between their own homes within the state. Under the 1945 Act, the question is whether or not those restrictions are reasonable. Often the term reasonable is a term of art in the law. Depending on the context, it has different meanings. A typical use of the word reasonable is what is called the reasonable person standard. That is, what would a reasonable person do under like circumstances at the time? This is often used in the negligence context. If someone is being sued for negligence, for example, the jury will usually be instructed that the person will not be found liable if he or she acted as a reasonable person would do or would not do under the circumstances. For example, a doctor is sued for medical malpractice for a bad outcome of an operation. Doctors have what we call a standard of care. That is what most doctors would do under the circumstances. Unless the plaintiff can prove that the doctor violated the standard of care, the plaintiff will lose. Let's say a doctor is sued for having botched an operation by not ordering a test ahead of time. And 99 out of 100 doctors would not have ordered that test either. The doctor is likely to win. On the other hand, let's say the doctor left in a scalpel and a sponge in the patient's gut, and no reasonable doctor would ever do that. The doctor is going to be held liable. Usually what a reasonable person would do is up for the jury to decide. Another area that reasonableness is used, for example, is the employment context. Let's say an employee signs an employment agreement and agrees not to compete with their employer after he or she leaves the employer. 
Usually that kind of restriction violates public policy and is unenforceable unless it is reasonable in duration, geography, and type of employment. For example, someone runs a restaurant and agrees not to open a restaurant in the same county for three years. That is probably reasonable. If they agree not to open any kind of business in the world for their lifetime, that's not reasonable. Another place where we use reasonable in the law is in its integration in the criminal law, in particular with the jury's determination of the guilt of a criminal defendant. To be guilty, a unanimous jury must find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Michigan's criminal jury instructions state as follows, quote, A reasonable doubt is a fair, honest doubt growing out of the evidence or lack of evidence. It is not merely an imaginary or possible doubt, but a doubt based on reason and common sense. A reasonable doubt is just that, a doubt that is reasonable, after a careful and considered examination of the facts and circumstances of this case, unquote. Often, Michigan courts will review a dictionary to determine the plain meaning of a word. Echoing the jury instruction of reasonable doubt, Webster's two New Riverside University Dictionary defines reasonable as, quote, one, capable of reasoning, two, governed in accordance with reason or sound thinking, three, within the bounds of common sense, four, not extreme or excessive, unquote. Law professor Brandon Garrett of the University of Virginia Law School explained in his law review article published in the Minnesota Law Review that reasonableness is common throughout the law, but as I just demonstrated, it's not necessarily applied consistently. Quote, the commonplace but highly inconsistent use of the word reasonable may not, however, suggest any settled meaning, particularly where constitutional interpretation is concerned, unquote. I will not go through a page-by-page review of Professor Garrett's 65-page article. Suffice it to say that there are many other examples of reasonableness or reasonability being referenced throughout the law in many fields, and they don't all match up. However, I would be unreasonable, all puns intended, if I didn't address in general terms the constitutional standard called the rational basis test. I'm going to try to insert into a few sentences a few months of law school, but basically the rational basis test applies to all governmental laws and actions. If the law or action fails the test, it will be declared unconstitutional as a violation of equal protection or due process. In basic terms, a law must have a legitimate state interest, and there must be a rational connection between the state interest and the means the law uses to achieve the state interest. This is usually considered a very lenient standard. Usually a law will survive the rational basis test if there can be any justification for the law or action, no matter how unwise or silly. And usually that means the courts will give the government a tremendous amount of leeway in determining what is a legitimate state interest and the means to preserve it. For example, almost any regulation of economic activity is going to pass muster. Here is an interesting U.S. Supreme Court case to illustrate the point. In Railway Express Agency versus New York in 1949, the court unanimously agreed that the New York City Traffic Code could ban all advertisements on the sides of any vehicle, except business delivery vehicles could display their ads. Think of an Amazon truck or a Domino's pizza delivery car with their logos on the side of their vehicles. Those are exempt. But the same vehicle with the same exact ads or logos are illegal if the vehicle is not owned by Amazon or Domino's, respectively. The court reasoned, with no evidence to back it up, that, quote, the local authorities may well have concluded that those who advertise their own wares on their trucks do not present the same traffic problem 
in view of the nature or extent of the advertising which they use." Unquote. Apparently, the driving public can tell the difference between an Amazon truck owned by Amazon and one rented by another. Okay, but even under this lenient standard, some actions will fall. In Village of Willowbrook versus Olek, a 2000 United States Supreme Court case, the court struck down a village's requirement that a single homeowner grant the village a 33-foot easement to connect him to the municipal water supply when everyone else in the village only had to give a 15-foot easement. This was a 9-0 to zero decision. The court found singling out the landowner failed the rational basis test. In light of the various possible standards, what reasonability test would apply to the governor's executive orders is an open question. I won't speculate, but the question could likely look somewhat like the rational basis test. If so, the question would be, is the order in question reasonably related to the goal of stopping the epidemic? If it is, it will likely survive. Someone challenging the prohibitions on motorboats, driving between homes, on commercial lawn services, would need to show why it is so disconnected to the goal of stopping an epidemic that it is unreasonable. And recall, the 1945 Act has the rule of statutory construction side of it that require courts to liberally construe the act in favor of the governor. Now remember, this discussion was all under the 1945 Act. The 1976 Emergency Management Act allows the governor to declare an emergency or disaster and to promulgate orders in light of that. This act gives the governor a wider range of powers to enact rules to address the disaster or emergency. Unlike the 1945 Act, which just has one standard, the 1976 Act uses a variety of standards. For example, the governor can suspend a law when strict compliance would hinder, prevent, or delay, quote, necessary, unquote, action to stop the epidemic. She can use the resources of the state, counties, and municipalities as are, quote, reasonably necessary, unquote. She can commandeer or utilize private property when, quote, necessary, unquote. She can order the evacuation of people when, quote, necessary, unquote, to preserve life or for mitigation. She can also direct other actions which are, quote, necessary and appropriate under the circumstances, unquote. Several powers she can invoke with no limit, such as prescribing routes and destinations in connection with an evacuation, controlling ingress and egress to a stricken or threatened area, suspending the sale of alcohol and explosives, and establishing temporary housing. The 1976 Act, therefore, has a necessary standard, a reasonably necessary standard, a necessary and appropriate under the circumstances standard, and no standard, depending on the type of order at issue. As such, depending on the action that might be challenged, the particular standard or test that a court might use would be subject to the applicable test. Most actions seem to fall within the miscellaneous catch-all provision of, quote, other actions, unquote, which would then be subject to the, quote, necessary and appropriate test, unquote. Well, that act is hardly a model of clarity. As I just mentioned, the necessary and appropriate test is likely to be the cornerstone of most gubernatorial orders. Although not exactly the same as the necessary and proper clause of the United States Constitution, reviewing the necessary and proper clause could shed some light on the issue. The necessary and proper clause provides authority to the federal government to enact laws that are necessary and proper to fulfill its enumerated powers. In the key United States Supreme Court decision of McCullough v. Maryland, written by Chief Justice John Marshall in 1819, the court examined the constitutionality of the First Bank of the United States. 
the court found that the Necessary and Proper Clause enabled Congress to create the bank to effectuate the express powers of coining money, regulating commerce, financing the government, spending money, and similar matters. Chief Justice Marshall wrote, quote, The government, which has a right to do an act and has imposed on it the duty of performing the act, must, according to the dictates of reason, be allowed to select the means, unquote. When selecting the means to effectuate its enumerated powers, quote, necessary, unquote, did not mean absolutely necessary. Marshall explained that necessary, quote, has not a fixed character peculiar to itself. It admits of all degrees of comparison and is often connected with other words which increase or diminish the impression the mind receives of the urgency it imports. A thing may be necessary, very necessary, absolutely or indispensably necessary. To no mind would the same idea be conveyed by these several phrases, unquote. In other words, necessary could mean convenient, useful, or essential. Although there is no certainty that the necessary and appropriate language of Michigan law would be interpreted the same way, especially since the terms do differ, Chief Justice Marshall certainly carries some oomph, to say the least. Yes, that's a legal term, oomph. The last area to explore, which has been touched on a couple of times, is the necessity of the governor's action to respect the federal and state constitutions. In particular, the constitutional rights guaranteed by the federal constitution and the Declaration of Rights of the Michigan Constitution. Technically, the protesters in Lansing and Ann Arbor seemed to be violating the executive orders. Protest, speech, and assembly were not ever listed as exempt activities. However, in connection with the Lansing protests, the governor acknowledged that people have the right to exercise their First Amendment rights, so long as they were complying with social distancing. Likewise, the frequently asked questions of the executive order requiring social distancing also specifically acknowledges that the First Amendment activities are protected. On April 15th, and yes, the same day of the protest in Lansing and in Ann Arbor, a federal lawsuit was filed in the Western District of Michigan. The three plaintiffs sued Governor Whitmer and the county prosecutors of Charlevoix, Livingston, and Washtenaw counties, alleging that Executive Order 2020-42 violates the federal and state constitutions. 42 is the big one mandating social distancing. The lawsuit argues that it is a civil rights action brought under the 1st, 2nd, and 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution. The First Amendment, as we will explore in future episodes, prohibits an established church and protects the rights of the free exercise of religion, free speech, and press, the right to assembly, and the right to petition the government for grievances. The plaintiffs claim a violation of the right to association. The Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms. The 14th Amendment requires states to provide equal protection of the laws and due process, both of which the lawsuit claims are violated. The action also claims the order violates the Contracts Clause of the Federal Constitution, and yes, we'll learn about that, which prohibits a state from impairing an obligation of a contract. The action also claims the order violates the Federal Statutory Protection of Civil Rights under 42 United States Code Section 1983. It throws in Michigan's right to bear arms as protected by Article 1, Section 6 of the Michigan Constitution. Two of the plaintiffs have cottages and can no longer travel from their homes to their cottages, and they claim not being able to travel violates the right to travel, deprives them of the property rights, and is unreasonable. They argue that exceptions for traveling to obtain abortions and marijuana shows how unreasonable the travel ban is. The third operates a landscaping business, and the order has impaired his contracts with existing customers. 
He also cannot use his motorboat to fish. One plaintiff is not able to buy ammunition, but argues that he can buy marijuana, food for a pet, and gum at a grocery store. One plaintiff wants to meet with family for a meal, fellowship, and prayer as a family in Christ's names. All the plaintiffs claim they would do all these activities while adhering to social distancing. A similar lawsuit was filed in the Eastern District of Michigan by several plaintiffs, including a landscaping company, cabin owners, and an individual who cannot visit his girlfriend and other family who live in another home. According to an April 17th report by WILXM.com, a Michigan woman and her son are suing the governor in a federal suit in the Western District of Michigan. The 61-year-old woman grows her own food, and now, because of the executive orders, she can't buy seeds and the plants necessary for her to live. She has been self-sufficient for 17 years. The plaintiffs claim that thousands of Michiganders grow their own food and are affected by the order. Whether any of these lawsuits will be ruled on before the orders are lifted is an open question. Whether the orders are continued or modified after April 30th is of yet unknown. Suffice it to say, these lawsuits present interesting, complicated, nuanced, and somewhat vexing issues of the clash between the unalienable rights protected by the federal and state constitutions versus legislative and gubernatorial authority to protect the health and safety of Michigan residents. I won't hazard any commentary or predictions on the lawsuits, but in one sense, regardless of their merits, they are reassuring. They affirm that our courts are working and that people recognize that the Constitution is at the forefront of protecting our liberties. After all, it is in times of crisis that asking challenging questions, probing the necessity of governmental actions, and pushing back, if necessary, is most needed to keep us free. A quick recap of today's special episode. The federal government is one of limited enumerated powers. States have all powers not given to the federal government. States have the police power to protect the safety, health, and welfare of their people. Protecting against an epidemic is in the heart of the police power. Michigan has enacted two Emergency Powers Acts, one in 1945 and one in 1976, giving the governor the authority to declare a disaster or emergency and to issue orders to address the crisis. Each act has its own standards about the legality of the governor's actions. Under the 1976 Act, the legislature has agreed to extend the state of emergency through April 30th, and Governor Whitmer has issued a slew of executive orders. Actions by the legislature and governor must respect the unalienable rights of the people as protected by the Michigan Constitution and the federal Constitution. Fellow patriots, thank you for your attention to this special episode, and stay safe and healthy. Please join us next time when we return to our regularly scheduled programming and explore the phrase, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, unquote. Until then, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week, on Facebook, on our Patriot Week Foundation page, 
and on Instagram at PatriotWeek1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on one of those social media platforms I mentioned or connect with me directly at M as in Michael Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, at PatriotWeek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.